Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us as our guest someone that is a little bit unique and quite different than a lot of people we've had on our podcast recently. He is a business intermediary with over 30 years of experience in the business brokerage industry. His name is Bob Ross. Bob is officially retired and now spends his time writing books for both the brokerage industry and people in that industry and in the entrepreneurial community and teaches business exit strategy and concepts. Bob shares with us a transactional story of an infrastructure construction company that did road work, and this particular company, because of the type of business it was in, was extremely equipment intensive, and the entrepreneur had accumulated nearly five times more equipment on the books than he actually needed. While the company had a strong cash flow, the amount of equipment on the books made it difficult to capture anything above the book value of that equipment on the balance sheet and to really capture some of that enterprise value was going to be very difficult. Learn how Bob was able to position the company that would likely have made it very difficult, if not impossible, to sell to literally doubling the business value and getting it sold quickly. Far less time than the seller ever thought that was possible. Then Bob shares a story of a retailer that had 75% more inventory than it actually needed in the business, and this fact made it very difficult for the business to sell. Bob used another strategy that he shares with us called owner finance floor planning. This allowed both the business owner as well as the buyer to make out like bandits. You'll be fascinated by this story. The next transaction that Bob shares with us is about how a business owner that has deals in the pipeline should structure their sales transactions when it comes time to exit that will allow them to capture some of that future revenue as well as benefit the buyer with what we will call free financing. Then Bob finally shares with us how an entrepreneur who made it a practice to always take a significant amount of cash out of the business by not reporting his cash sales. You'll learn how, after he sold the business, this particular practice got him seven years, that's right, seven years in the state pen. Oh, and he didn't even get to collect $200 when he passed go. You're really going to enjoy Bob's stories. And I think you'll learn a lot from his transactional stories that he'll share with us today. So enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm. We're here with Bob Ross. Bob is a business broker down in the Southwest. Bob, I want you to take a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your business and very briefly about your background and what you do today. Well, my name is Bob Ross. Uh, I've been in the business brokerage industry since the mid-80s. I retired as an active broker several years ago, but I still help brokers around the country every day working on transactions and helping them get deals done when they're having problems. I give them anything from advice from how to get it done to what sometimes it's what's the business worth, 
just anything in general that they need in, in brokerage, I help them with. That's basically a quick overview of what I do. Name of my company is Fuller Ross Group. All right. Well, it sounds like you have decades, if not more, um, probably multiple decades of experience in dealing and getting businesses prepared for sale and actually closing the deal. So why don't we jump in and chat about some of those transactions? Because I think uh, you'll bring a little bit different orientation than we've had for some time on the podcast here about how you get creative and get deals from almost a unsaleable situation to something that works out well for both the buyers and the sellers. So why don't we jump in here and you tell us about a transaction you've been involved in that had some of those characteristics. I'll talk about a heavy construction company first. One of the fellows that I used to work very close with was trying to list this business and he came back to me and he said, we got, I've got a problem with this. He said, this guy has got about $400,000 in cash flow. And he says, but he's got $2.2 million in assets. And I said, Bill, it's worth $2.2 million because once you get your assets more than four times your cash flow, a business basically becomes only the value of the assets. Okay, so let's make sure, because I think that's an important part. And this happens quite a bit with businesses that are asset intensive, have a lot of capital assets on the books. So why don't you talk a little bit about why that is? And so we have a situation here, as I understand it, a construction company. Was it owned by a group, a partnership? It was a one man. He was he was wanting to retire. He was, he was in his late 60s. He was a C-Corp which was pretty common when at that time. And for a lot of larger companies, C-Corps are common. He was in a position that, that he, you know, the 2.2 million just didn't, just didn't sit with him. He said, you know, I got to be worth more than that. So what we did with him was uh, I got involved with the other broker and we went back to talk to him. And we said, what assets do you have in equipment that you don't really need, that you don't use that often? that if you did have to use it once a year, you could go lease one from somebody for the short time you'd need it. He said, let me look and see what I can do. So this type of equipment, just for clarification here, is equipment, and since he's in the road construction business, this was heavy-duty equipment. Yeah, yeah, yes, very heavy equipment. Yeah, so and these are not cheap. I mean, these are right. hundreds and thousands of dollars per piece of equipment. That's very true. We told him, we said, why don't you try to liquidate as much of this as, as you can that you don't need? I think it took him about eight months, and he liquidated $1.2 million worth of the $2.2 million in equipment. So that money went straight into the company? Straight into the company and straight eventually into his hip pocket because he was going to be retired. Right. Now... We had a business with a million dollars worth of uh, assets and $400,000 worth of cash flow because cash flow was still the same. We were able to put it on the market and sell it for $1.75 million. Now, when you look at the total, he already had another million too. So instead of getting the, the $2,200,000 that he wasn't willing to take, he ended up getting $2,950,000 and was a very happy client. So repeat the terms that you just said right there, just for clarification purposes. Okay. Well, we sold it for $1.75 million. He already had the $1.2 million that he'd got from the sale of the assets. And when you add the two together, he got $2,950,000 for a business 
it would have been almost impossible to sell for the $2.2 million if he'd left it the way it was. What I'm really saying here is you got to get the assets in line with the business. Okay, so this is really an important part. I can't think of how many times we've had people that have shared transactional stories here on the podcast where the business was virtually unsaleable because of the structure and how the company was set up because they're such capital-intensive businesses. And so you got creative here. You allowed him to liquidate equipment that he didn't need. That money eventually went into his pocket. And how long did it take to sell the business once it went on the market? Because you indicated that it was going to be very difficult to sell. Uh, to, from the time we listed it till we closed, it was less than six months. And that's for a business that's going to sell for over a million and a half. Uh, that's extremely fast because I've learned that businesses that fall in the one, one in a million to $5 million range usually take somewhere between 10 to 12 months to sell on average. Mm -hmm. And of course, as the sales go up in value and complexity, it even takes longer. Right. And this is something you and I didn't talk about earlier, but, but you take a company that's, that goes with EBITDA earnings. Yeah, and EBITDA's earnings before taxes and depreciation insurance. Yeah. You take a company that's got a million and a half to $2 million worth of EBITDA, investor groups will come out of the woodwork contacting people about that. I was at a conference a few years back. And one of those firms was making a presentation. And when he got through, he said, questions. And I said, yes. I said, how many businesses did you buy last year? And he said, we bought one. I said, how many businesses did you look at last year? And he said, over 150. So I, I warn owners that there are a lot of what I call tire kickers you know, in that in that lower M&A field that they've got to be careful of because don't get your hopes up just because you've been contacted by one of them. Because they don't do a lot of deals unless they can do them, unless they really look good to them and they can see that they can grow the heck out of the company. Mm -hmm. I think that's sage advice here. So what would be the big takeaway on this transactional story that you've shared here today? What would be the big takeaway? That you got to get a business where it needs to be. Because for me, and, and I like to say tell this, the average business listing that is taken, according to a survey done by Babson College a few years back, showed that only about 30% ever close. And the reason they don't close is either they're overpriced or poor terms. Now with SBA, we can get rid of most of those poor terms, but overpricing is still always a problem. And what happens is I think the most important thing is a company's got to have good books and records. And if they've got good books and records and they run their operation and, and it's clean and it's got any desirability, it's not a problem. I, I've got a form that I have in the textbook that I wrote that shows how to value a business by taking what the owner thinks he wants for a business and then take from the and, and then you take take the cash flow that he has from that you take what would be the payoff on a five year note and whatever he's wanting down payment, 10% return on that. And then you want to know what replacement equipment. It's going to have to be bought looking at the last five years on average. And on top of that, then how much salary does the new owner have to have out of that owner discretionary cash flow? And if it doesn't leave at least a 10% to 12% minimum margin of left on the bottom line after you've deducted all that, then it's overpriced. An owner can do it himself. 
And in, in my textbook that I, I wrote for uh, teaching, because I teach classes for the Texas Association of Business Brokers and for the Texas Real Estate Commission for Continuing Education. I do a two-day course about twice a year. And one of the things that we point out that's very important is that you've got to have a reasonable price or you're dead. And I always, this was always my philosophy. If they weren't reasonable, I would, you know, leave, not waste any more time on them because a broker is going to put in lots of hours going through what I call the tire kickers to get rid of the ones that are never going to buy a business and find the one that has enough money has the right background and the right attitude to be the one to buy that business. Right. Well, I think that's good insight there. And you've done enough deals to know what it takes to get a deal closed. The takeaway that I see is that if you have a company that's capital intensive, if you have too many assets on the books, and as you gave your formula there of having four times cash flow to assets. So in this case, he had $400,000 of cash flow and four times that's $1.6 million. And he had $2.2 million in assets. And by really allowing them to sit back, evaluate their current situation, and then position that business on how it can be sold. And in this point, you suggested he sell off that $1.2 million, which left him a million dollars in assets on the books with still the same amount of cash flow. And I think that's a very creative situation. And I know there's a lot of people in the audience now that are business owners and entrepreneurs out there that have similar situations. The numbers may be different, but when you use that formula, 4X to cash flow to assets, it's a good rule of thumb to go out there and to know what you're eventually going to be able to value and how quickly you're going to be able to sell that business. So I think that's a very key component as folks that are intensive capital business oriented asset oriented to be able to think through that process so let's go on to another transaction here bob why don't you share something else with us that has some similar maybe a little bit different orientation but a similar good takeaway like that uh, i got a phone call and this man had a company that wholesaled rebar to people so i went in to meet with him found out he had already been listed with another broker who had had him listed for two years and had done nothing with him. And I sat down and looked at him and I said, you've got a very realistically good business here. I said, I think you're worth somewhere in the neighborhood of about three hundred dollars to $400,000. And he says, that's fine with me. And he then turned around to his credenza behind him and he pulls out this stack of invoices. And I said, what's this? He said, it was over $165,000 worth of cash sales that he had not put on the books and not recorded. And I told him, I said, hey, as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't exist. I valued your business where it is with the provable earnings that you've shown on the books. I said, do not show this to any potential buyer. He said, how long do you think it'll take me to sell it? And I said, if what I'm thinking right now works, it's going to take till Monday. And this was a Friday. And he said, what? Now, you have to get the context of this. It had been listed for two years with no activity. Right. But I had had a buyer that I had been working with that this seemed like it was a perfect match for what he was looking for. I went back to my office, wrote up the profile hurriedly, called him. He came over to my office immediately there on Friday afternoon, looked at it, and he said, when can we see it? And I said, how does Monday morning sound? He said, 
Sounds good to me. And I said, let me call and see if he's available in. I called the owner and he said, sure. Hey, great. We came over. We were sitting down. The owner had had all weekend, the new owner, the buyer, had had all weekend to look at the at the packages, the three years of tax returns, his income tax returns, and the information I'd compiled. And everything was going really smooth. And then I saw him turn around and start toward that credenza. And I said, Bill, stop. I said, I'm, I'm walking out of here because I will not be a party to what you're fixing to do. And so you got up and walked out of the room. I got up, walked out, went out in front to his receptionist and stood out there. And then about 10 minutes later, Mike, the buyer, says, Bob, come on back in. And I came back in. We wrapped it up. Mike and I started driving back to Dallas because it's been this I don't since what happened, I'll tell you, it was in Fort Worth. And um, he said, what about that? I said, ignore that. It doesn't exist. So when he says, what about that? He's referring to all of these $165,000 in cash sales, not run through the books. And that was over an 18-month period of time, he, he told me. Well, we close on it. So you told the buyer, just don't worry about that. It's still a good deal without that. With that, it's just a bonus to you if it's true. And I said, I'm not saying it's true because I don't, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist. No way to verify it, really. I mean, it's tough to verify. Anyway, we end up closing and the owner has got a $100,000 note as part of the closing. The rest of it was either bank or owner or uh, buyer financed. Mike takes over the business. First week he's there. He needed a load of rebar steel for a, a customer. So he called the vendor, the manufacturer. And when the truck arrived, he says, Mike, for, you're the new owner, but I need a check for $8,000 for that last load of rebar. He said, I ain't ordered a load of rebar. He says, Bill did. He said, I can't unload this till you pay it. This was a new load of rebar that he had ordered himself, but the old owner had ordered a load of rebar prior to leaving. That was part of the inventory that he paid for that he hadn't paid the $8,000 he owed the vendor. Okay. So for clarification, we have a rebar order that was ordered but hadn't been paid for, but was inventoried. Mm -hmm. So he calls the seller and he says, hey, you need to come give me a check for $8,000. He said, not going to do that. He said, if you don't, I'm not going to pay you on my note. Well, within about a month and a half, there was a lawsuit filed by the buyer, and I'm called as a witness to come in. So this is during deposition or during the trial? This is during the trial. I'd already given a deposition. I knew both attorneys. I said, why aren't they settling this thing? And I said, Bill, the, the, the original seller, doesn't have a chance in the world if he goes to court. And he said, I've told him that, but he won't listen. So anyway, I get subpoenaed. I come in, and the attorney holds up the stack of invoices because he had left them in the business. So he's got this two plus inches stack of invoices and you're on the stand, right? Right. And the attorney hold them up and he walks over. Of course, he shows them to me and he says, is this the ones that he tried to show you? And I said, yes. He said, what did you tell him? I said, I told him as far as I was concerned, they didn't exist and that I wasn't going to use it in the value of the business or anything else. I was on the stand for less than five minutes and I was accused. But I found out later talking to the attorney for the buyer that the next day, Bill was brought to the stand, the seller. And when he started cross-examining, he held up that stack of invoices. He said, were these invoices that you had from the last 18 months you owned the business? He said, yes. 
He said, did you report them on your income tax statement? He said, no. He said, have you since reported them on your income tax? He said, no. He said, do you intend to report them on your income tax? He said, no. In court, under oath. (laughs) Under oath. Uh, The next day, I was told, IRS showed up at the courtroom. This, we found out, was a second offense for him with IRS. And when the case was over, the $100,000 note was forgiven by the judge to the seller. So that $8,000 load of rebar saved him $92,000 in note payments. The IRS arrested the seller as soon as the case was closed. I believe he was seven years in federal pen that he did for this. Holy smokes. Here's what I tell people. Never, ever show a buyer or a broker or anybody any hidden money that you've been taking out of the business because the buyer can always hold it over your head. And it's just not a smart way to do business. All right. Well, that is a fascinating story and one that I think probably rings true to a lot of people listening out there because the biggest tax shelter on the planet is your business. And depending on how aggressive a buyer, seller, people that own businesses out there want to be, they can run a lot of expenses through the business. And depending, again, how aggressive you want to be, you can use that cash flow from the business to benefit you personally. I guess what the takeaway I could have, Bob, is that hide your cash at your own risk. Yeah, and, the, and, and I tell you, the businesses that are worse at it are restaurants, family-owned restaurants. They live out of the cash registers on, on so many of them. And most brokers don't even want to go near them because of that fact. But any cash-heavy business is very susceptible to it. And I've had, when a business owner asked me, do you think they're skimming cash? I've got a patent answer. I said, I don't know, but it's very common in this industry. And basically what I'm doing is I'm telling him the truth. I don't know. And second, I'm creating the, the possibility that it could be there, which kind of helps the owner a little. So hide your cash at your own risk. If you do tell buyers about the cash that you aren't reporting, they can hold it over your head. And in this particular case where it got litigious, the seller went straight to jail and did not pass go. You get his $200. Seven years. That's being penny wise and pound foolish. If you looked it up in the dictionary, they should have a picture of him there. Mm-hmm. Ne- next to being penny wise and pound foolish because that's a big price to pay for $8,000. That he didn't want to pay. Right. All right. Well, fascinating story. Let's move on here. And uh, what transactional story has a good takeaway for our audience? This company made military uniforms. The broker that listed it was a CPA and a business broker. And he and I had worked together for several years. And he contacted me and he said, let me tell you about this company I've got. I don't exactly know how to value it and what kind of price to put on it. He said, I first started talking to him about three or four years ago. And they were doing about $4 million a year in sales. He said, but they weren't bidding new government contracts. They were just keeping the ones going. They weren't growing. It. And I told him, I, I said, if you want your money out of your company, you need to start bidding contracts and getting more business. So let me jump in here. So it sounds like this is probably a pretty profitable business. And they were kind of coasting and probably not working all that hard and just living off of their past laurels because life was good. Is that kind of the situation? Yep. One brother was 62, one was 64. Okay. That gives us some context. Okay. Making good money and not working hard. So good for them. Well, four years later, they were doing $17 million a year. 
So what was the big change? Did they follow their CPA's advice? They went out and started making bids on government contracts, getting government contracts, and they were extremely good at what they did. In one year, to the different branches of the military, they had supplied over 2 million pair of pants. Out of that, they had a rejection rate of a total of four pair that was returned to them. That's the kind of quality they put out. That's impressive. By any stretch of the imagination, Black Belt Sigma Sigma, yes. They were considered one of the best contractors. I forget the, the word that the government uses for this type of contractor, but that's what they were rated as. The broker and I finally decided that based on their cash flow at the time and the contracts that they had ongoing, because government contracts for, for them were for five years. And the government isn't the smartest people in the world because if they overbought on supplies, the government bought them back from them. There was no way for them to lose on anything that they contract unless they bid lower than it cost to produce it. Well, we got the buyer in place and fairly quickly, maybe when I say fairly quickly, four or five months after uh, Bill listed it. And we uh, t- we were talking about getting ready to do the, the contract for the closing. And they said, now we've got out five different contracts on bid right now for the government. And I said, okay. And what was the value of those five contracts? And for clarification, if they got these contracts are five years, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Total of $23 million worth of contracts, more volume than they were doing a year now. But not, but that would be over five years' time, that extra. So at this point in time, they were $17 million in revenue, and they had $22, $23 million in the pipeline spread out over five contracts that would go for five years. Okay. It's a lot of money. <laughs> we put into the contract, if they got those contracts, any of those contracts, that for the next five years, that the owner would be paid 5% of the gross billings on those contracts. They got all $23 million worth of contracts. So for the next five years, they were going to take in 5% of $23 million worth of business. Well, that was a win for everyone. The new owners were elated. Uh, The broker was very happy because he was going to get a check for the next five years too. It worked out for everybody. And you want to see a deal work for everybody. In other words, a broker actually represents the seller. But a good broker is going to represent a fair and honest deal. And some of the best brokers I know are independents that work alone or only have one or two agents with them. I'm not knocking the big firms. Uh, They're very good brokerage firms. Some of their agents may fall right into that same category I described as being able to handle these type transactions. But I always look for a broker that's been around a while, knows what he's doing. And I always tell any seller, don't try to do it by yourself. All right. Well, the takeaway on your last story there, I think, is really if your company is not growing, you better buckle down and get to work and build up those sales and then wait a year, maybe two years so you can really leverage the value of those sales that you're bringing in. Sometimes two to three times the amount of those additional sales can be captured in the valuation of your business. And I think that's a really great takeaway for those in the audience that have sort of plateaued. Maybe you're sort of the end, getting close to retirement, and you aren't working all that hard. So what you're saying, Bob, here is that you really need to buckle down. If you're thinking of selling, 
you really need to be laser focused on increasing the sales. So you leave some runway for the new buyer that's coming in, as well as being able to capture that additional value for your final sprint. So that's a great takeaway, Bob. Well, I always tell everybody when I took a listing, now I want you to work harder now until we get closed than you have in the last five years, because you want to keep your business up and growing and growing right up to closing. And because I've seen too many people that they come to the office every day, but they retired five years ago. And those are the hardest businesses to sell because they're stagnant. And a lot of them will just use their inventory as their saving account. And they'll have extra inventory in there if they're in, if they're distribution, wholesale, or retail. And they just pile it up. And I've seen so many times that businesses have got so much more inventory than they need. And what I do, I know it's, it's an owner getting ready to retire, and it's, it's his savings account because he's going to sell off all that inventory and, and instead of having to pay taxes on it now by, by taking the money and not reinvesting it in the business. All right. So why don't we wrap up here with your last story that you wanted to chat about here today? Uh, it was a large retail furniture company. And it had sales of $3 million per year at about a 50% markup, which is pretty common in furniture. Or it was selling about a $1,500,000 in inventory each year at cost. The problem was that they had over $2 million in inventory at cost. Cash flow was approximately $500,000. The real problem is that there's over $1,250,000 in excess inventory. You're talking about excess inventory, meaning that the inventory was not obsolete. It was just overstock. The broker had a buyer interested in the, in the business, but the excess inventory was a deal killer. The owner was willing to take a million dollars down at closing and finance the balance for seven years. But even doing that, it wasn't going to work because it just couldn't, you couldn't justify paying that kind of price for it with the way it was. And I'll show you how we did it to make it work for both sides. The seller included $750,000 in specific inventory. In the sale. Okay, so let me just restate here for those that aren't watching this presentation on video and are listening to the podcast. So we have a business or furniture retailer here that has a couple of million dollars in inventory and five hundred thousand dollars in cash flow. And out of that two million, one point two is overstocked. It's not obsolete, it's just overstock in inventory. The seller is willing to put a million dollars down and finance the balance over seven years. 1.5 million. Is that kind of summarizing it correctly? Yes. But now we've got a problem. What do we do with that other $1,250,000 worth of inventory? So the buyer is not willing to pay for that extra inventory. He just can't justify it, but it's real inventory. It's there. So what we did, we created an owner finance floor plan. Why don't you explain to the audience here a floor plan and how that works? A floor plan is real common in a lot of industries. Uh, the marine industry, boats, motors, lawnmowers in season. In other words, like a, like a, a lawnmower dealer, I'll just use the brand Honda, for example. They'll contact him in January and say, we'll give you six months free floor plan on what you buy now. And so he orders enough lawnmowers that he thinks will cover most of his season because he's not going to have to pay for them until he sells them. Or, or if he doesn't sell them all, he'll start paying a small portion of it 
each month after the six months. And so that's what that's how basically a floor plan works. Okay. So we have a situation here where you're going to have the owner of the business create his own private floor planning situation here. Under the agreement, the buyer would have to pay 5% of the unsold balance each month after the first year. The reason we put that in there, it gave the buyer an incentive to get the floor plan merchandise sold as soon as possible. This gave the buyer the benefit of the excess inventory. How much inventory? $1,250,000 worth of inventory. All right. The buyer doesn't get the money. The seller doesn't have to pay for it, but the inventory is sitting there on the floor and can be sold off. And it's every month. Every month, he comes in, takes an inventory of that. Right. Okay. And whatever they sold, he gets paid for on top of his $1.5 million that he's got for the sale of the business. Uh-huh. And where does the 5% come in? The inventory that's left after the first year, they will pay 5% of the unsold balance each month. The unsold balance on the promissory note? On the floor plan note. Okay. This gave the buyer the benefit of the excess inventory. The owner would receive the total amount of the excess inventory in real life in actually less than three years. This also gives the buyer plenty of time to get the inventory in line. But that was a creative way to make a company with way too much inventory sellable. All right. That is pretty creative because you have a situation here where the business might not have sold. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. So you have a, an inventory intensive business with a whole bunch of extra inventory, 1.2 million on $2 million of inventory. And so you're really in kind of a predicament. The owner of the business has kind of painted himself into a corner here. And so your solution to this was to create a floor plan. And so they went ahead and closed a sale for a million dollars down, $500,000 in note payments over seven years at whatever interest percent that they negotiated. And then the balance balance of the inventory, the $1.2 million, went into this owner-created and financed floor plan. And so the buyer of the business had the advantage of having $1.2 million in inventory on the floor for his customers to buy. And every month they took inventory and whatever was sold, the buyer got paid for and the seller made his markup and margin on that inventory that was sold. Mm-hmm. It was a win-win. Right. And so the business was structured for the benefit of both. And it took, you said, just under three years to liquidate all of that excess inventory. Yeah. In fact, he got more money out of the excess inventory than he did, you know, his note, because the note still had to go run for another four years. So at the end of three years, he still had the unpaid balance of the $500,000 note. He'd gotten $1.2 million. He got paid out of that. And the seller was happy. He made his 50% markup on the inventory he was selling that he didn't have to pay any financing costs for or anything. Right. Win-win situation. So very creative. So I guess this would sort of work in almost any situation that has a lot of excess inventory that isn't obsolete and doesn't have to be written off that can be sold. And so I guess for me, the big takeaway on this, Bob, is that if you get creative, you can almost make any difficult or tough deal work. I think that it may not have closed. It may have been one of those 70%, 80% of deals that get listed that just don't close. Right. And you can take a deal that is not going to get closed and use some creative structuring and financing here in this particular situation, floor plan, to get that business sold. As long as the cash flow and the business is good, you can figure out a creative way to sell most businesses. You know, if you've got a $50,000 cash flow, you're, you're hard to sell. If you've got a three or $400,000 cash flow, 
you're much easier to sell. And the majority of the buyers in the market can buy a business that has somewhere between 150 and 500,000 cash flow with the SBA lending nowadays. SBA lending is very critical. Either that, if it's not, it's owner financing. Well, this has been delightful, Bob. It's nice to be able to chat to someone here that has the uh, level of experience that you've had and the niche that you carved out for yourself and that lower middle market, upper Main Street type of brokerage that you've spent uh, decades in. And for those in our audience that are in that market, some of the topics that we've talked here today, I imagine really resonated. There's been some really great takeaways here. So, Bob, I know that you're not active right now. You spend most of your time teaching and uh, helping other M&A professionals and business brokers out there uh, get some of their deals closed. But if someone wanted to reach out to you, either someone in the brokerage or M&A field or business owner out there that wants to chat with you, how would they get a hold of you? I'll get first. My email is Bob Ross, B O B R O S S 79 at Verizon.net. My phone number is 972 867 9202. And if you forget that, you can go to either one of these two websites I'm fixing to give you www.bbn net.com. And the other one is brokersnetworkgroup.com. Okay, cool. Bob, it's been delightful. So this is Marvin L. Storm for Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.